Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite players and personalities from Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, James Sue. My guest today is the legendary Mark Rosewater, head designer for Magic. Mark needs no introduction, but I do want to talk a bit about how I approach the interview. If there's one thing I've learned from listening to great interviews, it's that you want to be asking your guests things that they haven't been asked a million times already. Avoid the same questions, or else people tend to go on autopilot. That's a pretty tall order with Mark, because he is so prolific on social media, and so open with sharing the process in which magic is made. And so I approach the interview from two different angles. Angle number one, get Mark to talk about his family. I wanted an inside look into Mark's relationship with his loved ones and what he does outside of Wizards. Plus, I'm genuinely interested in the family aspect. Do Mark's kids play magic and games in general? What are they like? I did my best to explore this. Angle number two, let's get Mark to talk about design in context to everything else that happens at Wizards of the Coast. As a large corporate entity, Wizards is composed of different teams with different goals and focus areas. While we all understand this on an intellectual level, I wanted to drill into this on a practical level. I placed great emphasis on how things work in practice and prompted Mark to come up with supporting examples of how design works with the other teams to make the game that we all know and love. And just to keep things in perspective, you'll hear this a lot in the interview. Magic in 2018 is a completely different game from the magic that Richard Garfield pioneered. And that's okay. My hope is that this conversation will get you interested in exploring more of Mark's writings, talks, and podcast content. And one more thing, I've started a Patreon page at patreon.com slash jamessue. That's J-A-M-E-S-H-S-U. Rather than bombard you with advertisements, I've started this page with the hopes of recouping some of my costs. This podcast is definitely a labor of love for me, and your support allows me to keep it going. I have some awesome benefits on Patreon, and I've also set up some goals to hit. Now, this is the first time I've done something like this, so I'd really appreciate it if you could even consider giving to the cause. Please take two seconds, go to patreon.com slash jamesue, and see what it's all about. The rest is up to you. Perspective is always super important, and there's no better person to talk about this than Mark Rosewater. Enjoy. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I always say I'm excited to have people on, but you are literally the biggest magic personality, and I am just very excited, but at the same time, very nervous. So I apologize in advance if I come across as being not super coherent. I'll go easy on you. Okay. (laughs) So I'm curious whereabouts you are located today, Mark. Oh, I am in the Wizards of the Coast building in Renton, Washington, on the third floor, which is where we work. In a conference room called House on the Hill, which uh, which is named after something in Dungeons and Dragons. What Dungeons and Dragons references from a certain world in Dungeons and Dragons, or? Uh, it's an adventure, I believe, in Dungeons and Dragons. You're getting me outside my area of expertise, but yeah, I think it's an adventure in Dungeons and Dragons. I'm guessing for a lot of you guys at Wizards, you guys play all kinds of games. Are you into D and D as well? When I was younger, I played a lot of D and played it as a teenager, and in my twenties, I had a group that we uh. 
every other week we played Dungeon Dragons, and every other week we played Gamma World, which is another game made by the same company. And uh, we would rotate, and I ran the Gamma World campaign, and my roommate ran the D&D campaign. So I was, uh, I was a wizard. Uh, I was a wizard named Gemini, I think was my name. Uh, and the, the funny thing about that was my roommate had really strict rules about being in the scene and like being in character. And if you broke character, he would punish you as the DM and I would make jokes all the time. And so like I got turned into a fish and I lost my voice and all sorts of crazy things happened to me because I, I kept breaking his rules. Wow. That's, that sounds like quite the role playing experience. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. And is the game very similar to D&D in some ways or just different entirely? Uh, Gamma World it was, was also made. TSR is people that owned Dungeons Dragons before we did. Uh, they made both Dungeons Dragons and Gamma World. Gamma World is just a post-apocalyptic game uh, where radiation is your friend is how I describe it. Uh, you, you, you play like mutated animals and anyway, it's, it, it's post-apocalyptic. It's, it's, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, we, we had a very, it. It is very over the top, has more goofy qualities to it than I think D&D does. That's very cool. While we're on this topic, Mark, I wanted to ask, do you still play a lot of games outside of your day job at Wizards? You must play Magic, but I mean, do you still have a lot of regular gaming sessions or things going on? Uh, my biggest gaming is Friday nights is Rosewater Game Night, where my family plays games on Friday night. Um, that is probably the most games I play. And so I tend to play more group games, party games. You know, the, the stuff I play with my family is a little more casual sort of games. I obviously play a lot of games on my phone and stuff, but I, I, because when I'm not at work and because at work I play games at work all the time, when I'm not at work, I, I like to spend time with my family. And so other than playing games with my family, I don't do ton of game playing outside of work. And can you tell me a little bit about your family? You've mentioned them in your writing, but I kind of want to get a sense for, maybe let's start with your kids. How old are they? What interests do they have? Obviously you guys still play games together, but tell me a little bit about them. Okay, well, my oldest is named Rachel. Uh, Rachel is 18. She just went to college, uh, and she's studying uh, theater at college. And she's really, in fact, she studied communications, which is what I studied when I was in school. And um, she loves musical theater, and she's really into, she loves communications and theater, and so that's what she's studying. Um, so she's going to school in Chicago. Uh, and then Adam and Sarah are my younger kids, they're twins, they're boy-girl twins, uh, and they are both, how old are they? They're 14, they are, they, they turned 15 soon, uh, but they are both, they just started um, high school. So I, I, we've dubbed this the, uh, the year of the freshmen, because all my kids are freshmen in various schools. Um, so, and a Adam is really into video games, and uh, loves Nerf and, and uh, Legos, uh, and then my uh, daughter, Sarah, she's on the diving team. In the past, she's done competitive cheerleading, competitive dance, competitive um, gymnastics. So she is the jock of the family. And uh, like this last weekend, we just we went uh, out to Bainbridge Island to watch her dive. She had a diving competition. So but anyway, th that's my kids. Uh, and then my wife is named Laura. Uh, in fact, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary uh, earlier this month. We all live happily in a little town called Issaquah, which is, for, for people who listen to my podcast, know it's about 30 minutes away from work. Hmm. Okay. And about your younger two kids, they're kind of entering the age now where they are becoming more independent, quote unquote, teenagers, of course. So is it hard to 
find time to play games with them or for them to find time to play games with the old man, so to speak? Well, I mean, that's why we have the Friday nights. That's why we have family game night. The funny thing is they're always the one asking us that uh, the way it works is one of the parents, usually me, picks one of the games and then we rotate through the kids and they pick the other game. So we normally will play two games usually on game night, um, sometimes three, but usually two. Uh, and then they're always bugging us to play. So they, they my, my family, I've definitely passed along my love of games. My son, Adam, is the one that's, like I said, he's into video games and he's into a little more into games than my daughters are. Uh, like he's the one that'll play magic with me. I talk magic to all my kids. So all my, all my family knows how to play magic, but Adam's the one that will play with me. Like we'll break out like dual decks and stuff or planeswalker decks and play. That's really cool. And when you guys play on Fridays, is it, it sounds like it's a rotating rotation of games or? We, I own, how many games? I, I have, I think five bookcase filled with games. Um, so we have lots and lots and lots of games and we'll rotate around. Yeah. We, we play a lot of different games and my daughter, Rachel, who's off to college, took a bunch of games with her so she can play with her friends at college. So um, I definitely have a, a gaming family, although, like I said, they're a little more on the casual side of gaming rather than what I would call more core gaming, which is, is that I haven't passed that quite, quite as much as I have the love of more casual games. Nice. And how about your wife? She's, she's in the sessions as well, right? Yeah, Laura plays. My whole family enjoys family game night. Uh, they have a lot of fun. And... Back when Laura and I were dating, like R&D, uh, if you stay late after hours, uh, you they play games a lot. And so one of the things that's fun, back when I had a little more free time, um, I would do a lot of gaming just staying after hours and playing. Like In fact, Richard Garfield uh, loved introducing people to games they didn't know. Uh, and like he was really into uh, German games. So a lot of games that he would play with us didn't even exist in English at the time. Like Settlers of Catan, when I learned how to play it, was Seedler de Catan. And I called it Seedler forever because that I just that's what I learned. That's what the, the name of it. It's a name. And it took me a while to start calling it Settlers just because when I was playing, it didn't exist in English. Do you still have sessions with Richard Garfield? Because you mentioned that he's one of your mentors, of course. But do you guys still game or interact in that kind of way? The biggest problem right now is Richard, when Richard worked at Wizards, it was very easy. Well, when Richard worked at, at Wizards and didn't yet have a family, it was a lot easier for us to stay late and play games. Um, Richard doesn't work here. I mean, he's come and freelance for some projects like Dominaria, but um, he's not working here day to day. And I don't stay after anymore because I go home to be with my family. So uh, I have not gamed with Richard in a little while. He's awesome to game with, by the way. If Richard Garfield ever says you want to play a game, always say yes. But I've not had the joy of doing that for a little while just because you know we're not, we're not near each other or working in the same place. Kind of a related question is... Obviously, your kids, you've taught them all magic, and they know that you are very involved in, in magic, but do they know exactly what you do at work, what your daily role at Wizards is like? I mean, they're aware that I'm the head designer, and they, they know I make the game. I don't think they necessarily understand all the nuance of what that means. Um, but one of the things is, because I'm a very high-profile person in the world of magic, um, I'll occasionally get recognized, especially if we're in a game store or something. You know, if I'm in some place where there's likely to be magic players, I will often get recognized. And it tickles my kids to no end. They they think it's hilarious. And so, I mean, they they understand that I, I have a role that I play. And they know I make the game. And they, they know that I'm a, a celebrity to, to magic players. So, I mean, they they understand what I do to a certain extent. I don't think they know the, the tiny nuance of what's the difference between vision design and set design. That they don't know. 
but they do know that I'm in, I have I play a big role in making the game. That is very cool. I was hoping today that we could kind of go into the internal structure of design. Okay. And maybe the first question to make it simple is, can you just tell me the core function that the design team serves at Wizards for magic? I'll use a metaphor. Uh, my metaphor is building a house. So the idea is R&D and, you know, the, we're in charge of making the house. Other people are going to sell the house and market, you know, market the house and maybe ship the house to different places. Um, but someone's got to make the house. You know, uh, we're in charge of making the magic sets. Uh, and by making the magic sets, I mean mechanically what they do. And then we work with the creative team as part of R&D to build the worlds and the flavor and, you know, to figure out sort of the wholeness of what a magic set is. So in the metaphor of building a house, I'm in charge of what is called exploratory and vision design. And what that really is, is exploratory design is like doing the research and going out and figuring out what kind of houses are there and where are good places to build a house. And, you know, in this climate, what's the right kind of house? So it does a lot of the research. Then vision is the architectural plans. I got to figure out exactly what we're doing. I got to create a vision for the set. What essentially is the set going to look like? Is it a Tudor house? Is it an Adobe house? Is it, you know, what, is it a modern house? Like, what are we building? And so I have to sort of map out and plan what we're building. Then I'm going to take those blueprints and I'm going to hand them to set design. They're going to build the building. I'm not building the building. I'm just creating the, the vision for what the building is going to be. And what that means is sort of the essence of what the world is. Uh, usually I'll do the, the mechanics or the rough, the first version of the mechanics. Um, I often will make cards that are, kind of proof of concept of the kind of things we want. Sometimes I'll make cycles, but I'll sort of say, this is the kind of thing we want. And then set design uses that as a model and then goes and builds it. Then play design is kind of like uh, interior decorating. The play design wants to make sure that once the house is starting to get built, that everything about it is correct and fine and looks good. Uh, they'll also do a little field testing, make sure the house isn't gonna collapse or anything. Um, and so, all the different departments or all the different segments are about making and building that house, metaphorically. That's a great metaphor. So the question I have for that is, how do you inform what goes into the house in the first place? Does a vision just come from thin air or based on some collective experience that you and the team has or are there other ways? Um, there's a bunch of ways. I mean, one of the daunting things about the part, the part of design that I do is that we start with nothing and have to make something. Uh, and a lot of people get very intimidated. The blank page is very scary to a lot of people. I like the blank page. Uh, I, I'm one of the, like, I, I'm excited by the idea of we can make anything. Um, but the, the, the secret, the secret to doing it is we don't truly start with nothing. Um, we always start with some premise, some idea. And that idea could be a flavor-based. For example, Ixalan started with the idea of conquistador vampires, and they're coming to a new world. And Creative had, had built this idea of this world, and like we started with, okay, this is a neat new world we've never seen before. You know, Dominaria started with us saying, okay, we're going back to this place we've been many, many times, but not for a long time. And how do we take all those visits and consolidate into a single world? You know, original Ravnica started from us saying, 
I want to do a multicolor set that's as different from Invasion as possible. So instead of being about four and five colors, let's make a multicolor set about playing exactly two colors. And that each time I start a set, I try to make sure there's something that is a starting point I've never had before so that we just explore new things and find new areas to, to explore. And then my job and my team's job is what is the cool part about what we're doing that we can then make people want to play the set? Like one of the things that's important in what I do is why would people like set X? What about a set X makes people go, oh, I got to play that. What is it? And it can be many, many different things. You know, sometimes it's like there's dinosaurs. Sometimes it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's Egyptian. You know, sometimes it can be all sorts of things. Sometimes it's a mechanical thing. Sometimes, like I have a set upcoming where we built it around, I have just a cool mechanical idea and we built the entire world around this cool mechanical idea so that we could do the mechanical idea. Um, so the starting off point can be many, many different places, but the trick is before I'm done, before I hand over my, my blueprints to the set design team, to you know, my vision, it has to be about something and you have to understand why people would want this set, why this set's gonna be exciting. That initial vision, is it coming from an individual such as yourself or is it a group process or is it some combination of, of that? Um, there always, so the way it works is we always create an exploratory design team that runs for two to three months. Then we create a vision team that runs for four months. Uh, those teams can overlap, but they're not necessarily the same people. And I run a lot of the vision design teams. I do not run all of them. Um, I run right now the majority of them. Um, but I, I'm training people and we're always get, getting other people in and, and I'm usually on the team, even if I'm not running it, I'm usually on the vision design team, but I, I'm not running all the teams. Um, and yeah, the, we have, you know, three, three months, two to three months of exploratory and four months of vision to piece all the things together so that I can hand off, okay, set design, here's what we're going to build. And are there different skill sets that people need to have when they're in the exploratory versus the vision teams? Well, I mean, each exploratory and vision and set, yeah, so exploratory design, vision design, set design, play design, all require a lot of unique skills and some overlapping skills. Um, so let's start with exploratory design. That is what we call blue sky design. The whole idea there is here are areas we're interested in, go off, do anything, there's no restrictions, come up with anything you want because we're just trying to figure out what's possible. You know, sometimes people come back with stuff that's amazing and sometimes they come back with stuff that just crashes and burns, but that is good. Like coming up with things that don't work is very valuable because it teaches us what not to do, where not to go. And so exploratory is very much about um, pushing boundaries of trying new things. And the best skill set for exploratory design is a willingness to just sort of design unfettered. Don't worry about the rules. Don't worry about, like, just make cool things. And if we find cool things, we later will figure out if and how to make them work. When you get into vision design, it's a lot more about we actually have to prove what we're building. Um, we make cards. We make um, a full set of cards. Not that all those cards will end up in the final product. Some of them might. But more that we want a proof of concept for the set design team to sort of show, to build the essence of what we want and show them, hey, we want these cycles and these kind of things. They'll improve upon and often completely change out things, but they use that as a basis to understand the model. Um, the most important skill in vision design is 
recognizing fun to a certain extent of figuring out, A, what things really will make the set come alive and give the set some oomph to it, and understanding synergies, like why, in order to make it work, what pieces, what has to be pieced together? You know, in some ways, we're doing a lot of structural building. Like a lot of architecture is about making sure that the bearing walls are there so the roof doesn't collapse and that, you know, if you want to do certain things, it requires other things and that, you know, the key to architecture is understanding how building works so that you build it properly. Vision design is a lot the same way. Understanding how magic set works so that you're getting all the pieces so that you have all the components so that when set design goes to build the house, they can do that. So vision is very much about understanding kind of the inner workings of how things work and how synergies work and kind of what's fun and understanding all the different kinds of players and different kinds of formats, making sure that you're setting up something that there's room to build. Set design, they got to make the set. They got to actually make it work. So set design is very, very cares about um, practicality, understanding how limited works, how constructed works, that they want to build the stuff, not just to make sure it's fun, but make sure they're building things that the audience will be able to, it'll, it'll, you know, it'll put up under the pressure of the audience playing with it. And, you know, make sure we're making something robust and make sure that the fun things are what people will actually do. Like one of the dangers that can happen is if you don't design something right, there's a really fun thing, but the way to win isn't the fun thing. And then people do the not fun thing because they want to win. And then it's not a fun game. And so set design has to figure out how to make sure that the, the right way to win and the right strategies go through what the, is the cool fun part of the game. Like vision kind of makes the bullseye of here's what we want the fun thing to be. And then set design has to figure out how to actually execute the set. Thus that that is the correct way to play. That is the way that is fun. So set design is very much about structure, very much about understanding what is making things work. They, they care very much about how limited works, how draft works, how sealed works, how all the various constructed works, especially standard. Um, and then play design, they're the ones that are field testing everything and they're making sure that, you know, what we're doing has the, the polish on it and the shine on it. They're making sure that this house and all the details is doing what it wants to be done. And so when I talk with them being the interior decorators, they're making sure that all the finishing pieces are exactly what we want so that when people come and use the house, it does what they want it to do. And play design uh, cares a lot more about balance, a lot more about understanding power level, understanding color balance, and making sure that the set as a whole is delivering on what it needs to do, that it, it, it's sound in that way. That makes a lot of sense. And has this always been the case or has this sort of compartmentalization or componentization of the design team evolved to this over the years? When I first came to Mets, I started, I first started freelancing in 1994, full-time employee in 1995. Um, we had what we call design and development. So Magic always had multiple um, compartments to it. There always was um, the people who had the blank page who came up with what it was and the people that kind of then crafted it. Um, but the new system breaks it up into more components. Um, design and development, in some ways, uh, old school design ended up being exp exploratory and vision were the first part of old design. The middle part of design, the beginning of development is what we now call set design. And the ending of, of what we call development is a lot of play design. So we've chopped it up in, in some different organizations to play up different skills. Um, one of the things we realized was 
we needed more knowledge earlier when building stuff to make sure that when you play tested it, that it worked correctly. Um, and we also sped up how many worlds we're making and how many sets we're making um, so that like I used to spend a year on every design and now I spend four months in every vision. So in order to allow me to do what I do, I, I had to sort of, some of the stuff I used to do, I, I, I do more of the early part and less the middle part now, just because we have so many sets I have to get through. Right. Those are just the realities of how many sets need to be released on a annual basis, right? Yeah. We, one of the things that's, that's kind of stunning when you actually sit back and look at it is the volume of magic that we make every year is, is kind of daunting. Um, cause one of my jobs as the head designer is I have to keep track of everything. Like I, a lot, a lot of people in R and D will skip over. Like I work on set A and set B, but not set C, you know, uh, I have my hands in every single set that part of my job is making sure what everybody's doing, making sure it all balances together. I have to think about how the sets interact with one another to make sure that we're setting things up correctly. So I have to pay attention to every set. So that means at any one moment in time, there's anywhere from 10 to 15 sets that I have to be keeping track of. And now we're in the world where you know, it used to be every year was all one world. And now we're in a place where different sets can be different worlds. There's a lot to keep in mind. Given that you have to keep all these things in mind, do you guys have certain checks and balances in terms of ensuring that the quality of the sets is still at a very high level? Well, we have a lot of people. I mean, Magic... Uh, one of the, the luxuries of Magic being sort of such a big game is we get a lot of people working on it. We have a lot of time to work on it and a lot of people to work on it and a lot of resources to work on it. Back in the day here at Wizards, I worked on other games. Right now I'm almost exclusively Magic. But, you know, when I was first at Wizards, we made a lot of other games and I worked on other games. And, you know, there were games in which, okay, you have a month for design. That's, you're done. Hand it over. You know, and now... I have, you know, three months of exploratory, four months of vision, and then set design gets nine months, and play design gets three months. And you're like, there's, you know, we spend anywhere from two to three years, sometimes even more than that, making a magic set. And that is a luxury. But the upside is it allows us to make, like, really a game of the highest quality. I mean, magic is, I mean, I'm biased. To me, it's the best game ever. Um, but it is, I mean... Objectively speaking, a very strong, very popular game. And part of that is is because so many people spend so much time and energy on it. Like the, the amount of things we think about, you guys probably never spend two seconds on, and we will argue about in meetings for hours, is, is huge. Give me an example of that. I, I know you've given lots of examples in your writing in the past, but just for our listeners, I would love to get an example. For example, um, okay, I'll take an example from Innistrad. Should werewolves be the, a new creature type werewolf or should it just be wolf? And one side was like, we already have wolf. There are a few cards that care about wolves. You know, if we just make this wolf, then we just can have synergy between werewolves and wolves. Um, and you know, that would just, it'd be, it would blend better with the, the set before it. And the other side was like, but werewolves exciting. I don't want to make a wolf deck. I want to make a werewolf deck. You know, and, and the werewolf has a lot of, a lot of, you know, oomph and power to it. And that one of the exciting new things in Innistrad was, I mean, we had done a few werewolves in the past, but not really. Like, this is the first time we were really in any way doing werewolves where you could build a werewolf deck. And um, I, I was on the werewolf side, and I, I, I won this, this argument, obviously. Um, and so we ended up sort of compromising all the cards in Innistrad that cared about werewolves also cared about wolves, so that you always could add wolves to your werewolf deck. Um, 
but it allowed us to say, you know what, we this matters, let's have werewolves. And that argument, you probably didn't think twice, we printed werewolves and all the werewolves, we argued about that. There was probably 20 hours of arguments about that one topic. Sure, and, and it's important, right? Because it's part of the flavor of magic, which uh, I, I believe you were the one who coined the different player archetypes like Spike and Johnny, if I'm not mistaken, is that right? I did. The player psychographics, yes. That, 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 those are my brainchild. It's often hard for me, at least personally, to remove myself from what I am, which is primarily a spike, and try to understand that a lot of Magic players are really into the, the flavor of the thing, right? And so that's a big part of the, the house, I, I guess, to use your analogy. Well, he, so to continue the house analogy, many different people might move into the house, and they will use it in many different ways. And you have to make sure your house is... Depending on how people want to use it, the house has to work for them. And that's one of the biggest challenges of making magic is it is not – magic isn't really one game. In some ways, it's many games that share a rule system and that if you want to play commander or play draft or play standard or vintage or modern, like each one of those is a really different game. They're connected. The rules are connected. The, the pieces of the game are connected. But those are very different things. And when we make a magic set, we can't just we can't just go, well, this one's just for limited, or this one's just for standard, or this one's just for, you know, but we we really try to make sure that everybody can make use of it. Even a set like Commander, where we make a commander deck that's primarily for Commander, even that product is played by other people in other ways. You know, so we're always like one of the tricks of being a good game designer is saying you have to separate yourself from what you like about it to try to say, what, what will everybody like about it? And one of the reasons I came up with the psychographics in the first place was I wanted people to think in the sense of, okay, this kind of player, are we making them happy? What are the cards for them? You know, Timmy and Tammy need cards. Do we have cards for Timmy and Tammy? Johnny and Jenny need cards. Do we have cards for Johnny and Jenny? Spike needs cards. Do we have cards for Spike? Do we have cards for Johnny Spike, we have cards for Timmy Spike, we have cards for Timmy Johnny. Like, do we have every combination? You know, are we making, and then we look at formats, like other things for, you know, every time we make a set, we're like, let's look at all the formats. You know, might there be some cards that maybe modern players might like? Might there be cards that commander players want? Might there be cards for, you know, and pauper players? I mean, there's, there's an infinite number of ways to play Magic, and that that's the real hard part is, that I, I'm not just making a game for one game. In some ways, we're making components for every game of Magic. And that's, that's, there's a lot of ways to do that. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. It's the same rule set, but they're different games, right? Yeah. You had mentioned the different parts of the design team, exploratory vision and so forth. How do you see maybe the challenges of this approach? Because there's always trade-offs with every kind of system that is being used compared to maybe what was happening in the past, do you think there are maybe challenges with this approach that come up? The biggest challenge is there is not one single person's vision that goes from the beginning to the end. For example, let's say I'm doing exploratory vision. I'm then handing over the set to somebody else. Somebody else is going to do set design and a different group's going to do play design. Um, now, I, I see that as a positive thing. Um, one of the things I like about our current system is that it allows different sets of eyes. People can be biased, and having multiple people work on something kind of ensures that there's a lot of different viewpoints in it. But the downside is it's less auteur, if you will. We don't have a lot of sets where one person, from the very, very beginning of the idea to the very, very end of the concept, it's all one person doing it. That I mean, we don't have that. I, I, I think magic in what it is 
is served better by having the group make it versus the individual make it. Um, but we lack sort of a singular voice that goes through everything because we have multiple people working on it. There's pros and cons to that. I think more pros and cons is why we do it. Um, but there is a con in the sense that um, magic has a very magic-y feel versus a very, uh, I mean, we have designers that make a set, but it, it's not as, people don't say, oh, that's a Mark Rosewater set or that's an Eric Lauer set. I mean, the people that are really into the fine tunes might care about some of the details, but it's sort of like, it's a magic set. It's not one singular person. It, it's, this is what the people who make magic made. It's a magic set. Hmm. Does that give the sets a little bit less of an identity if it's a consensus, not a consensus, but a collective approach versus a person or a Mark Rosewater set, for example? I mean, they, they have an identity. I mean, the whole point of vision is to give them a strong identity. I, I don't feel like, I don't feel like you're going to look at something like Guilds of Ravnica or Dominaria or Ixalan and just confuse them. Each one of them is distinctively their own. Um, but it, there is less of some games, for example, have a lot of the personality of the designer in it. Um, you know, like for example, right now we have um, George Fan. The creator of Plants vs. Zombies is working in R&D. He, he's, he's here for six months to work on Magic. Um, he's a longtime Magic fan. And if I look at a game like Plants vs. Zombies, you can see George in Plants vs. Zombies. There's a lot of George in that game. I mean, I, I like the fact that there's different kinds of games, and I like the fact that some games really have the creator kind of shine through it. I think Magic is better suited for how it functions, but it's just different. Magic is something in which, in order to make it the the time and energy, it some games can be one person working in you know alone with with some support, but you know a small team. Magic is not made by a small team. You know individual components are made by small teams, but overall, if you take any one Magic set and say, okay, how many people touched this set? How many people did anything at all working at Wizards of the Coast? And the answer is hundreds and hundreds. You know, and that it, there's, there's not like one person with a few people in, you know, in the garage made this. That's just not the kind of game Magic is. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think that if Magic were made that way, it would have a lot of other problems. So, but that that is one of, the, I mean, that's one of the consequences of how we do things is it has a group feel and not an individual feel. I see. You have the luxury of perspective, Mark, because you have seen Magic over the years and the, the organization around designing and building the game or the house change over the years. So are there mistakes in the past that you guys have made when it was more of a solo effort that you guys are able to, to avoid now through this system? Well, I mean, it was never a solo system from the very earliest days that I worked on Magic, from the very earliest days of Magic. I mean, I guess Alpha was, Alpha's very Richard. But ever since I started working on Magic, it was a team. There, uh, Urza's Destiny was the only set I ever did where I was the only member of the design team. And even then, it had a full development team. Um, we've learned a lot. Like Game design is about iteration. That basically iteration is you make something, you try it out, you get feedback, you incorporate that feedback, make changes, and this loop continues. And game design is very much about iteration. You make things, you test them, you you tweak them, and you keep doing that until you have to put it out, basically. Um, magic, from a meta sense, you know, we've been iterating on magic design for 25 years. Like, one of the reasons I think magic is as good a game as it is, 
A, Richard made an awesome game to start with, so it, it started from a really, really good place. And then we've been iterating on the game for 25 years. And look, you know, the people I work with are really smart. Like, I, I believe the R&D team here is one of the best in the business. Like, this is a really talented group of individuals that understand not just game design, but magic. Um, and we've been just spending the last 25 years figuring out how to make magic even better. And that one of the things, as I look back over the years, um, in a lot of ways, it's funny. I look at some of the early sets I did, and they're kind of like the Model T. And I'm like, when you look at a Model T versus a modern sports car, you're like, well, that that seems pretty antiquated. But also, for its day, you know, like, for example, Tempest is the first set that I designed. I can look back. Tempest is kind of like a Model T to me now. It's, it's creaky in a lot of ways. But also, it did things that had never been done before that really sort of paved the way for the things that came after it. Um, and that, you know, whenever I look back, I can see how we can improve things, and then we find ways to improve them. Like I, uh, driving into work today, I do, I do a podcast driving into work, I talked about the lessons of Ravnica. And one of the things that was really interesting about it was how many things Ravnica did for the first time that are just, we now do that. That's just something magic does. You know, the, the way we built the world or how we use factions or just how we crafted the block or how we crafted individual sets. Like how we think about how we make magic was really informed by Ravnica. But so much of the time we had never done that before. Um, and there's a lot of pinnacle sets like that where really we did something and did something really right. And it shaped how we did magic. And that magic, like it's funny, I've been working this like um, in, in uh, not too long, in, in about a week from now from when we recorded this will be my 23rd anniversary working on Magic and working at Wizards. And I look back to the early days, and while there are similarities, it's not that everything has changed. A lot of things changed in a lot of different ways. Just in how I work with other teams, how I work with my own team, how we build things, how we think about it, the, the, all the components we think about, how we test, the tools we use, everything has changed over time to a certain extent. I mean, Magic at its core is still Magic. That's one of the things I love about the game and why Richard made such a robust system is at its heart, I don't think the game has changed what made it fun from the first place. But we have found so many different ways to sort of up our game and make the best product we can so that like we have a lean, mean sports car versus the Model T of old. I think that's really valuable because it's kind of unrealistic, at least in my opinion, to expect things to not evolve. And I know that a lot of people at times will be very nostalgic about the Model T or about some set that came out or was released 10, 15 years ago, but it's sort of the evolution of the game, if I understand you correctly. Yeah, Magic is a game about change. Like Magic from its very foundations is you can play any cards in the game and we're going to keep making new cards. And by the very essence of that idea, the game is going to always be in flux. Now, add to that the idea of standard, where like we're always sort of changing because things rotate in and out, you know, and that magic is never resting on its laurels. Like one of my jobs is you could say 23, I've been, you know, I've been working here for 23 years. I've been head designer since 2003. Like, could I just kick back and, and like, no, 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 no. I'm every single time I'm making a magic set, figuring out how can I make this magic set better than the last magic set I made. And even though I'm working on my, I don't know, 50th, 60th set, whatever, whatever set I'm working on, that I'm always trying to step up and up my game, that I, I want today's car, or today's set to be the Model T when I look back, 
you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now that I want to look back and go, wow, man, we evolved since then. And that one of the things I really love about my time here is every time we advance, we're always striving to get better, that we're never saying good enough. We can just, we can stop innovating. We're always trying to innovate, not just in the game itself, but how we make the game. Like I'm talking to you about exploratory design, vision design, set design, play design. That was brand new two years ago or three years ago. Um, you know, that was brand new. Like we had never done magic that way. We'd always done it a certain way. And we're like, you know what? We can do better. Yeah, we've done it the same way for 20 plus years. We can do better. And that that's one of the things I really love about working here is we're always trying to figure out how to do what we do better to make magic a better game, to make the audience happier. Um, like one of the things I do a lot is I interact with the public constantly. I have a blog where I answer questions every day. I've answered like 100,000 plus questions on it. I, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. You know, I'm all over the place because I want to talk to the public. I want to hear their opinion. Uh, we also, not just me, we also read a lot of social media so we can see what people are saying. We go on all sorts of different forums. We want to hear what people think because we're constantly striving to make it better. And that is an ongoing thing that, you know, one of the luxuries of having so many people and so much time is we can keep striving to make the best game possible. Yeah, that's that's awesome. What are some ways that the team as a whole or the design team actually can live these values or try to live them on a daily basis? Well, one of the most important things that I always do, and I, I know that all of the, you know, the, the leaders here uh, at Wizards try to do, is you want the team to feel that it's theirs. Like when I'm doing a set, I don't want it to be, it's my set and you guys are helping me. It's our set. We are building this. This is something we as a group are making. And that I want everybody who's working on my team to be invested. And that, you know, a really important part of what I do when I run things is I want everybody to feel like their voice matters, their opinion matters. Not that we will always will make the decision that they will make, but that if I'm making a decision as the person leaving the project, it's because I've taken everybody's opinion into account and all those opinions matter shaping what we're doing. And part of making a group project is you want everybody involved. When I say hundreds of people work on every magic set you know, across the company, I want every single person who touches magic when that set comes out go, yeah, I did that. You know, No matter what you're doing, no matter what part you're working on, that every little part matters. And that I know there's like, I work on the thing that's the showiest thing in some ways. You know, I work on the game itself. Like, what, is, what does the cart actually do? Um, but there's a lot of people that spend lots of time and energy, you know, like uh, in R&D with a guy named James, James and Daniel, who like do frames and symbols. And they design that stuff and they do amazing work. And there's a lot of cool things that happen. Like Sagas from Dominaria are a great example where, you know, we took an idea that from a mechanical standpoint was different and weird, and they brought it to life, you know, along with the creative team of, of just giving it a, 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 a creative conceit, and that when Sagas came out, it wasn't just like, here's a cool mechanical component, it was, here's a whole cloth thing. And part of that was, like, James made this frame that just sold it, that just made you feel like, oh, this is a story happening, you know, and that I think a lot of people might um, obsess on the mechanical in this of it, but all the components, and you know, the, the art conceit, the idea that it's 
stories told through art. So it's not just a story. It's not like a normal magic picture. It's a magic story told through the art of the world. And that was a, a really amazing idea. You know, that was um, like Kelly Diggs and the creative team really working to, you know, um, and Mark Winters working to really give it a clean identity. So when we make something, it's everybody playing at their, the top of their game, all coming together, and all those pieces coming together to make something in its whole, that is something amazing. And that the way you do that is you make everybody feel like what they do matters so that they're, they're on their A game all the time and that everybody's coming together to make the whole package is amazing. The logo is amazing. The packaging is amazing. The marketing is amazing. Everything about it is something you can stand up and go, that's awesome. How does the company culture ensure that there's open communication and transparency across teams? One of the things about any organization is making sure there's good communication lines between different parts of the organization. For example, when we make a magic set, there are many, many people downstream of us that care. Somebody has to physically make the cards. Somebody has to ship the cards. Somebody has to program it into digital. Somebody has to run tournaments with it. You know, that everything we do, there's many, many people that have to use it. And so what we do is we communicate with all those people early on. That if I'm gonna make something that I think might be a problem for digital, early on I talk to digital and say, okay, what's going on? Where's the problem? Are there tweaks I could do that won't affect what I do but makes it easier for you? You know, if there's tournament issues, we'll sit down with the tournament team and say, okay, here's the thing we're doing. How's this going to matter? We're making double face cards. How are we going to draft those? Let's work through and figure out rules so we understand how that works. If we're going to do something, we're going to make a new frame or print something a little weird. We'll talk to the people that do the printing and say, can we do this? Like when we did double face cards, can we print on both sides? What problems is that going to cause? When we met unstable, we were doing some bleeding and we were doing things we hadn't done before. And we went and talked to the to the people that do that make the car physically make the cards and said, okay, what restrictions do we have? How do we do this? And that we're constantly talking with all the other groups because magic, once again, it's a group effort. It's not a group effort of one team, it's a group effort of the entire company. And so all of us, like we all know we are making something amazing. Magic is an awesome, awesome game. Millions and millions of people around the world play this game and they are, you know, we have a lot of people that are very passionate about it because it's a great, great game. I think the best game ever made, but still, I'm a little biased, but it is an awesome game and we want to make sure everybody who works on Magic is proud of Magic. Everybody works on, like, we know we're making something awesome and so everybody at every level, hey, if you're not giving your best to it, everybody around you is giving your best. You need to step up and give your best and, and the culture here is, look, we're making something amazing. Don't you want to be a part of something amazing? And so people step up and do really, really, I mean, stellar work at every level. You know, and I talk about R&D all the time, but, you know, the people at every other section, people printing the cards, mailing the cards, selling the cards, you know, our legal team, our, 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 uh, our PR team, everybody who's around making sure that on every level this set is doing what it needs to do, it's all those people. And once again, there's a lot of components you, the audience, have no idea. You never see. You know, there's a lot of things that are don't even reflect necessarily on the cards themselves but matter. And all those things, there's people caring about all of that. And, and that's one of the reasons that Magic is a great game is because we really do care and Every person at every level puts in the effort. That's uh, that's a great answer. Mark, I'd like to uh, switch gears a little bit and just ask you a set of rapid-fire questions that may not be related to each other. Is that okay with you? Okay. From your point of view, what does magic need to do to stay relevant and growing for the next 
10 years, let's see. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it needs to do what it's always doing, which is never rest on its laurels, constantly be changing and adapting. I think Magic does do that, and I think it needs to continue to do that. But, you know, if you go back and look at 1993 and the world we lived in and what gaming was and what social media was or wasn't, versus now, we live in such a different world that, like, Magic has to reflect the world it lives in. And so we are constantly adapting and changing our things to try to make sure that we are staying present with what's going on. And I, I think one of the reasons that I have, I believe magic is going to succeed and do well for many, many years to come is the attitude of being flexible and being willing to adapt allows us to change to, to times as they adapt. I suppose that also includes digital and I've seen wizards do a lot in that area. Are there other things that you think magic needs to do to never be satisfied with the way that it is? So I live in the future. I, I, I mean, I'm working on magic two to four years in the future. There are lots of things coming. Like we are not resting on our laurels. We are doing things that you will not expect. We are doing things that I think the audience is really going to love. Cool ideas we came up with that we had never come up with before. But I mean, I can see the future and just in the immediate future, we're doing amazing, awesome things. Some stuff that no one's going to see coming, but they're going to love when they finally get, finally gets there. And so I have, I have every faith that we are going to stay relevant. And I always say that when I die at my funeral, they're going to play magic. Uh, and, you know, I, I think magic's going to outlive us all. I think magic has a very, very healthy future, long and healthy future. My next question is, do you have any thoughts as to the state of organized play or how that tournament experience needs to improve, either as a bystander or as someone who has talked to players about it? Well, one of the things about being on social media is I hear from players and I mean, we have a very, we have an awesome organized play team. We have a team that they want to make the best, just like we want to make the best game. They want to make the best experience for players out there. And whether that's digital, whether that's tabletop, you know, however it is, they want to do the best that they can do. And once again, I, I get to see the future. I know they're working really hard doing lots of cool and awesome things and that I have great faith. Once again, we work together. We're a team. Um, this is not the area that I work on, but I have great faith in the people that do work on it, that they're going to do a lot of cool and exciting things for you guys, for the people who play uh, in tournaments. Let's imagine, Mark, that you have a, a time machine. And if you could go back to 2003 and tell the Mark Rosewater that just became head designer, what's something that you would tell him? Um, well, I mean, I'm a big fan of time travel stories. So the first thing is nothing. But assuming that I'm not messing up the time space continuum or something. I think the thing that took me a little while to learn that maybe I would talk to him about is I think that I spent too much time in the early days. I worried more about what people thought and not enough of what people felt that one of the things that I've really learned as a game designer is whether someone truly loves something really connects with it is more emotional than it is intellectual and the more and more that I, I'm a game designer, the more and more I realize that. And that's something I might communicate to my a younger self uh, of, while it is neat to do things that make people think in cool and interesting ways, and definitely we should do that, that if that isn't paired with something that makes them feel something that's new and unique and really lets them bond with what they're doing, that the first won't be as impactful without the second. And that's something that I, I every time I make a set right now, I'm always thinking about, how does the player bond to the set? How do they emotionally connect to the set? And that 
one of our jobs in making magic is we want to make it fun. We want to make something people enjoy to do. You know, you only have so much free time and you, you get to choose how to use it. We want to make sure that you want to use your free time playing our game because we want it to be something that enriches your life and is a great use of your time. And that part of doing that is making sure that we are meeting the needs you have when you play the game. What do you want? We want to make sure when you play the game that you are satisfied and you go, that was an awesome use of my time. I'm happy I did that. Not, oh, why did I do that? And so part of on our end for making it is making sure that we are delivering what the audience needs to get. Excellent. What advice would you give to someone who is thinking about playing in their first competitive magic tournament? Interestingly, I will give the advice that I think is the same advice, another piece of advice I'd give young 2003 me. The only way to get better in life or in gameplay in tournaments is acknowledging that you are responsible, that owning up that the reason you lose is not external factors, they're factors that you have control over. And that if you wanna be a good magic player uh, competitively, you have to own up to the fact that a lot of why you lost is not Manda screw, it's not a bad matchup, it's you made decisions that you could have made differently that could have either won the game for you or at least increased your odds that would have made a, a better chance of you to win. And that the same is true here in making the game, which is I gotta own up to my mistakes. If I make a set and that set isn't received by the audience as well as it needs to be, or even if, if the set is well received but components aren't well received, like part of making making magic better is saying when we do something right, learning that we did it right, and we do it wrong, learning that we did it wrong, and then understanding why it was wrong and improving upon it. And that one of the things that I think makes you a better magic player is owning up to your mistakes, makes you a better magic designer, owning up to your mistakes. And so that's something that I, I think actually will make you a better person. It's not just a magic thing, but if you're going to play in competitive magic, own up to the fact that you have a lot of role on how good you are. Um, and that also part of being good is putting in the time and energy and doing the education, doing the reading, learning and understanding what it is. Part of making yourself better is having the knowledge. Part of being a good game designer, the reason I talk to all the players and do all the social outreach that I do is I want to know what I did right and wrong so next time I can do it better. And part of that is the communication. Part of that is learning. If you want to be a better magic player, read uh, read tournament reports, read deck, you know, learn deck lists, and read what other people are doing so that you can see and understand what's the meta game. The best players in the game, they write articles. They'll teach you about things. You can learn from them. So, you know, always be willing to learn and always be willing to accept that you can be better. That's awesome. That's great advice. So, Mark, I am so grateful for you taking the time, and uh, I uh, I hope we can do this again someday. As always, I love talking, so thank you very much for all the fun questions. It was great talking with you. This concludes our episode. Please subscribe to Humans of Magic on iTunes or on SoundCloud to ensure that you get new episodes as they are released. To learn more about Humans of Magic, please visit humansofmagic.com. And to support Humans of Magic, please go to patreon.com slash jamessu. That's J-A-M-E-S-H-S-U. We'll see you next time.